Hello, and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Bentley Kaplan, coming to you from the confines of my bedroom in a windy, stormy Cape Town. We are back from a mini hiatus, and although Mike is taking a little time off to recharge, you're in goodish hands with me. It's the first week of September, and an annual turning point as the Northern Hemisphere trudges into autumn and the Southern Hemisphere sashays into spring. And that's appropriate, because this week we'll be tackling stories about change. And in each of our three stories, with the help of our ESG superstars, we'll scratch below the surface to see if any of this change will force tipping points for companies, for investors, or for other stakeholders. First up, we'll hear from Gillian Millard about how Hurricane Laura has strengthened the case for more transparency into a company's asset footprint and its supply chains. Then, Sam Block will give us some context for Rio Tinto's decision to recoup bonus payments from company leaders over the recent destruction of an Aboriginal heritage site in Western Australia. And last but not least, Andrew Young will join us at a crossroad for Microsoft as it mulls the acquisition of the hot but controversial social media company, TikTok. Thanks for spending your precious pandemic time with us. Let's do this. On the 16th of August, a tropical storm started forming off the coast of West Africa. And in the space of a few days, that little storm would grow up to become Hurricane Laura, making landfall in the Caribbean and moving north through the US with wind speeds of up to 150 miles per hour. Now, when it comes to hurricanes, including record-busting ones like Hurricane Laura, I thankfully don't have any first-hand experience. But Gillian Millard, my colleague from New York, does. She was in the city when Hurricane Sandy hit, and more importantly, as a GIS specialist, she also knows a lot about what a hurricane means practically, what physical risks it brings along with it. You hear the different categories. You hear one, two, three, four, five. And that refers to the wind factor. So how strong the winds are that are coming through. And as you get higher in the numbers, closer to a five, there's more destruction and there's more, more chance of uh, you know, loss of property and loss of life. And with its strong winds and storm surge, Hurricane Laura did some major damage as it moved through the Caribbean and the US. By the end of August, more than 30 people had died in Haiti and at least 14 in the US, with thousands of homes destroyed and hundreds of thousands of people left without power and water. But despite the enormity of this devastation, part of it was largely predictable and almost inevitable. So Louisiana and Texas, they're in a, in a hurricane zone. So is Florida and New York and also the Gulf of Mexico. That's sort of the U.S. hurricane zone. The, the thing that's not predictable is the actual course the hurricane is going to take. So we know that it starts in the Atlantic and it, and it works its way, its way north. Sometimes the trajectory of the, the hurricane isn't really known until three to four days out. And sometimes that path changes. You see, but that little bit of uncertainty did not deter Jillian. If anything, it spurred her on, because on the 27th of August, MSCI ESG Research shared a blog post with a map showing the projected path of Hurricane Laura and which company assets would be at risk. Gillian used some of MSCI's internal data and information from the National Hurricane Center to put the map together. And things got a little hairy, because the day before the post came out, Laura's path shifted again and Gillian had to rerun her analysis. But the real key to Gillian's map was being able to figure out which companies owned assets, like facilities or factories, that were sitting in Laura's path. And that data took a little bit of elbow grease. 
so that data was pulled from our proprietary asset level database. And what I did was I, I pulled out all the assets that we have verified so that we have confirmed that they are owned by entities within our, our coverage. The U.S. has a lot of good data sets. So any company that pollutes to the land, air, or, uh, or water has to report to one of the EPA um, programs. So we're able to also use that data set to verify the locations in our asset level database. Now, once Jillian and the team had been able to identify these assets and sort of verify them, we could work out which ones were exposed to the hurricane's winds and storm surge. Now, in total, there were 7,000 assets included. Remember, that's facilities, factories, etc., sitting in Laura's projected path. And the industries that were expected to be hit the hardest were commodity chemical producers, companies that refine, market, transport, and store oil and gas, and companies providing energy equipment and services. Now, knowing where a company's facilities are is a key but often missing piece of the puzzle for investors as they try to figure out what a hurricane could mean for their portfolios. And it's more than hurricanes too. Knowing where a company operates is helpful for any type of physical risk. And even more than that, any factor with a spatial component, like say the trajectory of the COVID-19 pandemic. But even though this asset location information would be super helpful, getting your hands on the GPS coordinates of a company's factories is still very tricky. One of the biggest challenges that I face in analyzing the physical risks of companies is understanding where they're operating. And it's not just where their facilities are located, but also their supply chain. And as companies become more transparent and disclose more information about where their facilities are operating and what their supply chain looks like, that, that'll help with the, this type of analysis. And pressure on companies to disclose where they operate, where their suppliers operate, is not only going to be about the impact of something like a hurricane on the company itself and its share price, but what that potentially means for other stakeholders in the company's larger orbit. There's one thing that I just I find really interesting, which is that there's a lot of heavy industry within the, the region that was hit, but it also has a lot of vulnerable communities. So low income families and uh, a lot of communities of color. And one of the things that happens when you have coastal flooding near a large industry is that you get toxins that are created at the plants mixed with the floodwaters and it can cause more damage to communities. And from communities in the Gulf Coast staring down the floodwaters of heavy industry, we move across the globe to the Jukun Gorge in Western Australia, where in May 2020, the mining company Rio Tinto legally destroyed one of Australia's oldest Aboriginal heritage sites to access an iron ore deposit. Despite the company having state government approval, there has been considerable backlash over the destruction, both from investors and the Putukunti Kuruma and Pinakura people, or the PKKP, the traditional owners of the land. And in August, after a board-level review, the company announced it would cut bonus payments to senior leaders, including Rio Tinto's CEO. Now, for Sam Block, our mining industry lead based in New York, the company's response to the incident was not totally expected. Uh, this is definitely quite rare. Probably the first time I've seen a case like this exactly. I mean, we don't often see cases where a company gets in trouble for damaging or destroying a World Heritage site. We do see executives getting pay cuts for different things. The most common ESG metric that can lead to a pay cut for a CEO is, is related to health and safety. And then occasionally we'll see 
companies, you know, cut the the salaries of the CEO if they have a large layoff. Occasionally, if there's a major accident, usually with people, you know, dying or there being major damage to certain areas, major spill, for instance. So the cuts in bonuses came on the back of a board-level review of the incident, which laid partial responsibility at the feet of Jean-Sebastien Jacques, Rio Tinto's CEO, and the company's heads of its iron ore division and corporate relations. Now, these three company leaders will reportedly end up losing a total of £4 million from their bonuses. But it's important to dig into the details a little bit further, because the company did not do anything illegal. The Western Australian government granted Rio Tinto permission to go ahead with blasting way back in 2013. But what is alleged is that the company was not fully transparent with the PKKP, the Aboriginal community, about potential alternatives to the blasting, and that senior company leadership had not sincerely weighed up the benefits of an iron ore deposit worth £75 million with the social and cultural impacts of destroying a heritage site more than 46,000 years old. And this is not the first time that Rio Tinto has ended up on the wrong side of communities around its mines. It's happened before in Canada in Guinea, in Arizona, and in other parts of Australia. And full disclosure, there's no reason to single out Rio Tinto either. This pattern is relatively common across the mining industry. It's almost like a cost of doing business. Which, for stakeholder capitalists, or even just investors interested in the bottom line, could be a big problem. For mining companies, one of the biggest financial risks is losing that social license to operate. First of all, a mine project in itself can can take up to 10 years just to, before production even begins. And then you want to have a long, long living asset. And you also want to, you know, once your infrastructure is in place and you're in your base in an area, you want to also be able to expand in that area if there's opportunities to do so. And we've seen many cases where, yeah, you know, the company went in, they signed an agreement. 20 years later, they want to sign a new agreement and they want to expand. And turns out there's this generation of people that had bad experiences. They had water quality problems. They didn't have enough water supply. They had a lot of noise and pollution. And, you know, you have this generation. They don't want to see that same thing for their children. They're going to protest and say, no, you know, get out of here. And so, you know, it's very important. For, for a mining company in particular to, to maintain that social license to operate. You see, part of the challenge for mining companies is that their operations, which involves finding, mining, and processing mineral resources, can be dirty work. And Rio Tinto is no exception. It's one of the world's biggest mining companies with more than 45,000 employees, revenue of $43 billion in 2019, and interests in a range of products, including aluminium, silver, copper, diamonds, gold, and iron ore. Now, from an ESG perspective, we at MSEI ESG Research assess the company on eight key issues. But maybe most telling is that when we look at the impact of environmental, social, and governance factors on the ESG rating of Rio Tinto, environmental factors count roughly twice as much as either social or governance factors. Now, as of late August, on a scale ranging from triple C to triple A, we rated Rio Tinto at a single A, which is slightly above average, compared with other companies in its industry. And full disclosure, assigning a mining company an ESG letter rating is a very complex process. Which is exactly why analysts like Sam watch keenly as companies like Rio Tinto look to navigate a crisis, especially one like Duke and Gorge, which in many ways can be an acid test for the company. They got a lot of grief from, from different stakeholders and investors around the world, uh, a lot of bad press about it. So 
And so they, they've done, they've started to do some, some important steps. They've created a new position that will oversee kind of social performance. And so this way, they, they hope that these kind of uh, sensitivities won't kind of slip through and it won't happen again. For them to kind of step up and say, you know, yes, we are going to take a, a bit of a pay cut here is a good step, but it's also so largely symbolic. And, you know, it's not exactly, it's not like they're, they're sending this pay to the community. They're keeping within the company. And I'm sure there's going to be some expenses related to this incident, but it could be really just a way to kind of stop some of the criticism in his tracks and say, look, you know, we feel bad our CEO is getting a pay cut. So it is interesting to watch these ESG risks shifting for mining companies. In an industry where the life of a mine can often outlive a government regime or a whole generation, a company would do well to manage risks with a very long-term view. But sometimes the speed with which these ESG risks evolve can catch even the most thorough of companies off guard. And that crafty segue brings us to our final story. In early August, Microsoft announced it was in discussions with ByteDance, the Chinese parent company of the social media app TikTok, to acquire its operations in the US, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. The potential acquisition could cost around $30 billion and still needs to get over a number of pretty complex regulatory hurdles. And that's before you add on a truly juicy layer of geopolitical tension, allegations of cyber espionage, and a newly anointed CEO suddenly dropping mic. Now, despite the temptation to start peddling some saucy conspiracy theories, we're going to dial down the noise, stick on our ESG goggles, and focus on what the acquisition of TikTok would mean for Microsoft. Remember Microsoft? In all the controversial Silicon Valley companies that make the headlines, it can be easy to forget about the company that designed the software currently running on around a billion PCs. But just because the company isn't making clickbait headlines doesn't mean there isn't a story to tell. And Andrew Young out of our London office, knows it pretty well. I think the story is quite well known about Satya Nadella. He came in as CEO in 2014, and the company is really focused on the enterprise side, and it's uh, it's done extremely well. It, it faces several ESG risks, which it has managed very well as well. Firstly, it's competing uh, for talent from you know not only Silicon Valley, but also other major tech companies. It's been able to continue to attract these top talent and grow its, for example, its cloud business. On the privacy side, because it's more enterprise-focused than consumer-focused, maybe there's less scrutiny on this company than on several of uh, the Silicon Valley companies. And it's made some really serious commitments to privacy as well. Uh, One thing we always look for is a commitment to what's called privacy by design. That's where you build in or you have, for example, a privacy expert in your product development team. So all of these privacy concerns are taken into account as products are built. And um, that's uh, that's subject to change when it when it makes such an acquisition. And TikTok would would be quite a big asset for the company. It's something around 10 percent of its balance sheet. You see, for years, Microsoft has been focusing on its bread and butter, enterprise software the modern-day plumbing that keeps so many companies running, stable and steady. And Microsoft has done a solid job in managing its ESG risks. For several years, it's been rated at AAA, which is the highest possible rating in our MSCI ESG ratings methodology. Until now, Microsoft has steered clear of social media and advertising. But there is definitely something enticing about a company like TikTok for a company like Microsoft. An add-on that instantly introduces tens of millions of young users into their ecosystem 
and complements their Xbox gaming platform. But as a company, suddenly changing what you do can have some big implications. And going from enterprise software to social media, user data and advertising may not be all that it's cracked up to be. They see a big shiny product here with huge potential for advertising revenue, um, but just unsure whether they understand what the implications could be. There's no social media that starts out as a cesspool of hate speech and disinformation, but they, they all tend to end up having these issues. And that's something that a social media manager has to deal with. It's reputational and it's also regulatory. There's more and more discussions, not just in the US, but around the world about how to manage some of these issues, um, you know, the propaganda, disinformation. The worst case scenario would be that Microsoft doesn't understand what it's getting itself into. And as much as we'd love to know, we're not really sure what will happen to TikTok or to Microsoft. At the time I was recording this, it was reported that multiple US companies, including even Walmart, were still in the running. So yeah, who knows? But wherever companies like Microsoft end up, one thing to look out for as an investor is how they respond to change. How a company like Rio Tinto reappraises its relationships with indigenous communities as the gap between legal and socially acceptable starts to widen. How companies respond to calls for better disclosure of their assets and supply chains to feed into increasingly sophisticated risk mapping tools. And how astutely companies like Microsoft weigh the ESG risks against tempting upsides of an enticing new business venture. Because whether a company is moving from summer into autumn or winter into spring, you kind of want to know that it's well prepared. And that is it for the week. A massive thanks to Gillian and to Sam and to Andrew for their take on the news with an ESG twist. Thank you very much for tuning in. We love your feedback and suggestions. Please do keep them coming. Hit subscribe wherever you're listening to us. Throw in a rating if you're feeling so inclined. But most of all, take it easy. Take a moment to watch the seasons changing. And we will be back next week. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc. subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research, LLC, a registered investment advisor and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.